And now we come to God's holy word. Brothers and sisters, if you will, take out your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This text will not be up on the screen behind me. Uh, we, we try not to put the main text up on our screens because we want to encourage you to bring your own Bibles and to look at the text with us in your own copy of Scripture to follow along as we read and as we refer back to it time and time again during the sermon. And so I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible or if you don't, to take out that one on the pew in front of you. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 23 here in just a moment. Abraham Kuyper was a theologian, author, and once was even prime minister of the Netherlands. He lived from 1837 to 1920. And in the year 1880, he made a speech to open a university in Amsterdam. And during that speech, one of his quotes was so memorable, it's become famous down the years. He said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, Mine. There's not one square inch of our human existence that Jesus does not want for His own. There's not one corner of our hearts. There's not one little aspect of our lives that we are to keep from Him. You can have everything else, but this I keep from myself. No, Jesus wants it all. He is Lord of all, and He is calling us to give Him lordship of all, of every square inch of our human existence. Today in our text, Paul encourages us, Paul challenges us, he commands us to do everything to the glory of God. Give everything over to the glory of God. Let's read our text. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. We're actually going to be reading down to chapter 11, verse 1, because that's where the section ends. So, verse 23 of chapter 10. God's word through the Apostle Paul. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go... Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, well then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Now, if you've been here for our sermons, if you've listened to the sermons from about 1 Corinthians chapter 8 onward, Paul speaks frequently of the conscience. 
We've talked a great deal about the conscience in recent weeks, and Paul speaks of it here in our passage. We've talked about what is the conscience? How should it inform the way we act? How should we think about our consciences? We're not going to give a full treatment of that here today, but if you'd like a full treatment of that, a more full treatment of that, go back on the website or the podcast and listen to the sermon about seven weeks ago called Laying Down Your Rights, where we gave a more full, concentrated treatment on what is the conscience, how are we supposed to think about it. Paul mentions a few things about conscience today. We'll, we'll mention them briefly too, but this won't be the time to, to do a full lesson on what is our conscience. But you'll also notice that in these last three chapters, Paul has been speaking a lot about food offered to idols, especially in chapter 8, but even on through chapter 9 and 10 here, food offered to idols. It comes up over and over again. What's he doing? Now, we saw back in chapter 8 that this esoteric practice of food offering, being offered to idols and a Christian's response to that, it seems far removed at first. It seems so far removed from our modern day context, but in reality, it applies in so many different ways to the things that we experience day to day here in our context in Colombia. But what Paul's doing when he constantly refers to food offered to idols is he's using that as a way to teach the Corinthians about Christian freedom. The Corinthian church desperately needed to grow in their understanding of Christian freedom. And brothers and sisters, this is in the Bible because God knew that every successive generation, every generation, every church, Every human being would need to understand this vital principle because if you get Christian freedom wrong, brothers and sisters, you can lose the gospel altogether. You can lose your faith. You can cause others to lose their faith. We've got to understand biblically what it means and what it doesn't mean to have Christian freedom. So food offered to idols is just a way for Paul to teach on this topic to a church that needed to hear it And by the Lord's grace, by the Lord's wisdom, to all human beings and all churches for all time that need to hear this. They misunderstood Christian freedom in Corinth. In fact, there were two groups in the church that were going wrong in their thinking on Christian freedom. Two groups. The first group said, because of our freedom in Christ, we can do anything we want. It doesn't matter what we do, right? We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from the law. We're forgiven. It doesn't matter what we do. We can do anything we want because of our freedom in Christ. You kind of see this in verse 23, where Paul is quoting one of their sayings back to them, saying, all things are lawful, but, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up, right? And so that first group is saying, we're free in Christ, so we can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. No rules. But the second group was swinging the pendulum from that extreme to the other extreme, and saying, because we are in Christ, we can't do anything at all. You can't do this, you can't do that. You can't do this, you can't do that. If you want to be a Christian, you can't do anything. You can't do those things. And they were laying on top of people rules over and above the commandments of the Bible. It wasn't just the thou shalt nots in the Bible. It was more than that. It was like the Pharisees and their treatment of the Sabbath day, right? It's all kinds of extra biblical rules that God never laid on people, right? And so, Paul says these two groups, both of them are wrong. Both of them are falling into a dangerous error when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to Christian freedom. One group is falling into licentiousness. We can do whatever we want. The other group into legalism. Now, brothers and sisters, God knew. 
that every generation would need to hear this because it is human nature. It is human nature to drift toward one of these extremes away from the center, which is the gospel. It's human nature to drift toward licentiousness or legalism. Churches, churches fall off the biblical path of gospel freedom one way or the other today. And we need to see this as a warning for our church and for our lives. Some churches will overemphasize their freedom. We're free in Christ. God is love. God will never judge you for anything. We've been set free from the law, and so we don't worry about commandments. God's not really concerned with holiness or obedience. We're not going to stress that at all. We're free, free in Christ. And their message to the world is, come be a part of this because you really don't have to change to come to God. You really don't have to repent. You really don't have to change your lifestyle. You don't have to deny yourself. You don't have to do anything that would be hard. It's easy. Just come on in. The water's fine. You could be just like you were before, only now with the benefit of Jesus, right? And so in a church like that, well, sin comes into the church unchecked. If you remember the Corinthian church, back in chapter 5, there was a man who had his father's wife, and the church was just fine with it. They weren't doing anything about it. Like, it's no big deal. Sin comes into the church unchecked. In churches like this, holiness is not important, and people end up getting hurt. Hypocrisy abounds pretty soon. This leads people to leaving the faith. Leaving the faith. The distortion of the gospel toward licentiousness causes people to leave the faith. Because for some, they get re-enslaved in sin all over again. Sin enslaves them. It takes them away from Jesus. For others, they say, what's the point of me denying myself? What's the point of me denying my natural urges for godliness? What's the point? And so they walk away from God all together. You end up with a church that's not a church at all. It looks just like the world. It's not a group of people set apart for God. Holiness doesn't enter into the picture. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning for us. We can become like this if we are not careful. If we do not understand, it's a distortion of the truth. It's falling off the biblical path, off the center which is the true gospel. In Galatians chapter 5.13, Paul warns the Galatians from this. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Yes, we are free in Christ. Yes, that's true. But do not use your freedom as an excuse for sin, as an opportunity to indulge in your sinful nature. No, Jesus set us free so that we could be free to serve others and to become holy. Not so that we could be free to sin. Paul says elsewhere in Romans that we died to sin when we came to Christ. How can we live in it any longer? How can we try to find loopholes to sin if we were forsaking that when we came to Christ? We turned away from sin. And so, yes, we are free, but don't use your freedom for licentiousness, for sin. And so that's a serious error. It leads people away from God, not actually to Him, but away from Him. But on the other hand, there's an error that's just as serious. Some distort it with licentiousness. Others fall off the biblical path toward legalism. Think about a church that has become legalistic, who loves rules and regulations. We love rules. We love regulations. They overburden people with requirements that God never laid on them. They they really enjoy extra rules on top of 
the commandments that God laid on people, there's extra rules. To be a Christian, you have to do it like this. To be a Christian, you have to say this. You cannot do that. You cannot have that. You cannot own that. You cannot participate in that. They control you. It's legalism. They enforce rules where the Bible makes no such rule. And following Christ in a situation like that, in a church like that, following Christ becomes a burden. Not a freedom, a burden. And almost an an impossible task. The legalistic church leads people either to pride. Pride abounds in the legalistic church. Sin abounds over here too, right? The sin of indulgence abounds over here. Pride abounds over here. It leads people to pride because some are strong-willed. Some are extremely disciplined. And so they look down on others who aren't. They say, that that person must not really love God. That person must be lazy. Pride. Pharisaical pride. It either leads to pride or a place of legalism. If it doesn't lead to pride, it will lead you to despair. Because if you're not in that camp that's super disciplined and super self-willed, you just look at those people and you'll say, well, I'm obviously not good enough. Because I know my heart, and I'm not perfect. I know my sins, and so I'm never going to live up to that standard. I might as well just quit. I might as well be done with Christianity. And that happens all the time, brothers and sisters. All the time. Christians who are peddling a legalistic gospel, that God rewards those who are good enough. That's not the gospel. God rewards those who are good enough. Members of those churches, people who grow up in those churches, they see that and they say, I'll never be good enough. I I know I'm not good enough, so I might as well just give up. There's no use in me trying because I'm never going to be good enough for God. Do you see how serious these distortions of the gospel are? Because they lead people away from God. They lead people to hell. We've got to understand Christian freedom because if we don't, we could be leading people to hell. We could be leading ourselves there. Paul warns against legalism to the Colossians, the church at Colossae. Colossians 2.21, where Paul says, and again, he's quoting something from them, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see that? All of these extra-biblical rules, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, they really don't get at the heart. They don't really cure the disease. They're band-aids. They're external regulations. They don't have power. And so, brothers and sisters, Christian freedom. True Christian freedom that comes from the gospel is in the middle of those two extremes. We pursue holiness. We're seeking to rid ourselves of sin, yes, but we refuse to lay rules on others or ourselves that God never laid on us. We're free to enjoy God's creation and the joys of living in this world that he made. We are free to do that as long as that freedom doesn't lead us into sin or others into sin. We've got to understand biblical Christian freedom. One of the ways that Paul teaches the Corinthians on this and is teaching us comes in verses 25 and following, where he tells us that he does not want us to have an overloaded conscience. Paul does not want you to have an overloaded conscience. You want a conscience that is properly constrained by the Bible, 
But you don't want an overloaded conscience, and this happens often in Christian circles. Look at what Paul says in verse 25. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then he says, if you go over to an unbeliever's house for dinner, eat whatever is set before you without raising any ground of conscience. Paul does not want you to have an overloaded conscience. Now, we're sitting here reading that and we say, okay, I get it. He doesn't want me to have an overloaded conscience, but I don't have this question in my everyday life of meat that has, might or might not have been sacrificed to idols. I don't have this question, so how do I apply this, right? Part of the, the skill of reading the Bible is taking the principles of what it was applied in that day and then moving it into the 21st century and applying it in our day and in our context where we live. And so let's do that for a second. Let's say you're at the grocery store this week, shopping for groceries. You're a Christian. You're trying to do everything to the glory of God, but God does not want you to have an overburdened conscience. And so it would be ridiculous for you to go up to the poultry section when you're picking out your chicken thighs and you'd say, uh, I need to see a manager. Was this chicken free range or not? I need to know that before I buy. Or your, your ground beef. Were, were these cows grass fed or not? I need someone to figure that out because if not, I can't buy that, right? Does, you're going in the, the, the first aisle there. Does the little Debbie company affirm the doctrine of the Trinity? Does anybody know that? You don't think like that. Put your fudge rounds in the cart and go home. Right? Eat them to the glory of God. Or let's think about this. I'm preaching right now off of an iPad. All right? An iPad. And I wrote my sermon on a computer, both of which, both these tools, made by a company that often affirms unbiblical values publicly. Does that mean it's a sin to use their products? Does that mean you're in sin if you've got an iPhone in your pocket this morning? Well, no. God often uses non-Christians to do things for the good of the human race. God's children benefit from the natural talents and the gifts and minds and work of unbelievers. Now, if it's a company that is selling something that is blatantly sinful itself, they're selling sin, right? Well, then we're not going to participate in that, right? But there's a difference between a company selling sin and a company selling products. Now, you could use these products for sin, but they're not inherently sinful. And just because you do not agree with every principle or every uh, advertisement campaign of a company does not mean you have to boycott that company to be a Christian. Your conscience is free. Let's take another example. Burger King. Now, I might be shooting myself in the foot here talking about food, but we're going to go for it anyway. All right? So pay attention. Right? Don't let your mind wander to lunch yet. Burger King. Burger King, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, Every now and then, they'll come out with an ad campaign that is specifically geared towards supporting the LGBT community and their values. Right? Burger King, for whatever reason, whoever runs that company, that's, that's what they want to do. All right? Now, let's say tomorrow, somebody calls me up in the morning and says, Hey, John, can I come over and talk to you uh, about some spiritual matters? I, I've really got this weighing on my heart. I need to come talk. I say, Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you come around lunchtime? And they say, Hey, great. I'll bring lunch. And I say, well, that was, that was very nice. That sounds good. You bring lunch, and we'll eat together, and then we'll talk about spiritual things. And then that person shows up, and they've got Burger King, right? Well, do I refuse on moral grounds? Like, oh, no, I, I can't eat that because I'm a Christian, so no, I will not eat what you bought for me. No, I, I don't do that, right? My conscience is free to eat a Whopper and fries to the glory of God. Conscience is free there. 
right? Now, in my own personal life, maybe, maybe I choose not to give my money to that company because I don't really like what they're doing with some of their advertisements. But I'm not going to turn that down when somebody does that as a genuine you know, offering of goodwill. But let's say this. Let's say this. That person comes. They bring their Burger King and they say, Hey, John, I specifically went to Burger King because they support LGBT lifestyles and I wanted to support it too. Isn't it great that they're all about inclusion and love? Now, if they come to me saying that, I might very well take my Whopper and fries and throw them in the trash just to to make a point about where God stands on issues of sin and issues of sexuality. Look at verses 28 and 29 in our text. In verse 28, Paul says, if you go over to that unbeliever's house, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for his conscience, right? Paul says, you're free to eat. Your conscience is clear. But if they say that to you for their sake, if they say that to you for their sake, you should refrain, right? For their sake. Not because your own conscience is constricted, not because it would be a sin for you, but it's for them. The focus is on them and their well-being and them understanding the truth of God. Now let's say this. Let's say it was a person of goodwill. They brought me Burger King, and we're talking about spiritual issues in there. Let's say we set up a table in the gym. And then let's say, hypothetically, another Christian comes in, and I know this person to be a bit of a legalist. And that person comes in and they say, Brother John... You're eating Burger King. You you can't eat Burger King and be a Christian, Brother John. You can't do that. You can't eat Burger King and be a Christian. What am I going to do then? What I'll probably do then is take a a nice, slow, obvious bite of that Whopper and go, Mmm, that is really good. Aren't you glad God made cows so delicious? You, You see what I'm doing there? There's a place and a time to refrain And there's a time to enjoy. And it it depends on who you're with and who you're around. Your conscience is free in a situation like that. But there's a time and a place. Brothers and sisters, this calls for wisdom. Remember, we prayed for wisdom earlier. This calls for wisdom. You might be sitting there saying, geez, like, how am I supposed to understand when to do this and when to do that? It sounds so complicated, right? Because this is not the cut and dry Ten Commandments. This is not the black and white, this is sin and this is not. You're not going to get a hard and fast rule here. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? We, we like our hard and fast black and white rules. It'd be nice to have that, but we don't have it. This calls for wisdom. A wisdom that is gained over time as a Christian as you pursue the Lord. There will be times to do this and then times to do the opposite, depending on who you're with, depending on the situation. God wants us to learn, to discern when is the right time, when is the right situation. In Hebrews 5.14, the author to the Hebrews says this, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Their powers of discernment have been trained by the solid food, by constant practice. Brothers and sisters, this takes... Pursuing God through consistent reading and studying of our Bibles. It takes a growth over time. Pursuing God through consistent reading and studying of our Bibles. We've got to be in the Word. We've got to be searching this thing out for ourselves. And as we do, little by little, 
a chapter a day, two chapters a day, here and there, reading through our Bibles, through books of the Bibles. As we do, God is sanctifying our mind. Remember Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Reading this Word, studying this Word, both individually and corporately together. We are renewing our minds day by day, having our powers of discernment trained to distinguish what is right, what is wrong, when is the right time, when is the wrong time. Especially when it comes to these matters of conscience. This takes time, brothers and sisters. It's not something a brand new Christian can master immediately. But what does help, what is of great help, it's clarifying, is to see how much of this is predicated on concern for others, right? You do not make these decisions of conscience based on yourself. You make them based on others who you're around. And so sometimes you will be free to enjoy because of the company that you're around. And sometimes it will be right to refrain because of the company you're around. It's concern for others. It's not about you. It's all about what is best for those around me. In Philippians 2.3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That's what our conscience is all about. That's what Christianity is all about when you really think about it, right? We're counting others more significant than ourselves in humility. The ultimate example of that is Christ. If you keep reading there in Philippians 2, the ultimate example of someone in humility counting others more significant than themselves is Christ. Jesus lived like that. He lived like others were more significant than him. Is anyone in the history of the world more significant than Christ? No. But he lived as if they were. The lowliest of people. He lived and served as if they were more significant, more important than him. We must do the same, brothers and sisters. Are we all equal in God's eyes? Yes. But what I need to do in my mind is I need to convince myself that you're all more important than me. I need to convince myself and live like that, that everyone else is more important than me. And if we could live like that, brothers and sisters, there would be a gospel culture in this church that would be irresistible to the watching world. We put the faith of others and their spiritual well-being ahead of our own right to do whatever we want. Now let's go to verse 31. Verse 31 is like the capstone in this whole passage. And not just this passage, but I think 31 is the capstone verse from the last three chapters. The, the big argument that Paul's making, it all culminates in verse 31. Now you can see as you go on in, in chapter 11, you can see chapter 11 verse 2, Paul, Paul makes a hard left turn and goes somewhere else. Okay, so you come back after Easter and see what I try to do with that passage, right? Paul's going in a much different direction at chapter 11. But before that, he's, he's concluding this chapter's long argument. And the capstone of everything is verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, write that one down. Memorize it. Get it framed and put it on the walls of your house. You want a life verse? This is a great one. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever it is, do it all for the glory of God. When you become a Christian, Jesus claims every single square inch of your life. 
Every single square inch should be given over to him. How can I do everything for the glory of God? Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you will only find true happiness and true freedom when you give everything, when you give it all up to him. It might sound like this is a burden. It might sound like this is a frustration. How can I constantly do that? But I'm here to tell you, it does not lead to frustration. It does not lead to feeling overwhelmed. It leads to joy, giving everything over to Jesus. How can I do whatever I am doing to the glory of God? Let's go back to food for a second. Food again, okay? We're talking about food a lot today. I'm from Lexington. Before I moved here, we lived in Lexington. In Lexington, on Nicholasville Road, which is the really, the really big road that you try to avoid because of traffic and everything, but on Nicholasville Road, there's this one spot with so many good restaurants, or at least to me, so many of my favorite restaurants, I just spend a ton of my lunchtimes right there in that little spot on Nicholasville Road. In this little spot on the right, as you're going out of town, there's Five Guys Cheeseburgers. Five Guys. You guys know what I'm talking about? Now some of us are really distracted, okay? Five Guys Cheeseburgers. Well, let's, let's, let's paint a scenario where two men walk into Five Guys and order the exact same thing. Well, they can eat to the glory of God or not. You can eat to the glory of God or not eat to the glory of God. For instance, they order a double cheeseburger and fries, and of course they give you more fries than you can even handle in that place. But one eats and enjoys it as a rare treat. He's thankful that God made meat and bread and taste buds. He's thankful for the workers who prepared his food and served him. He's eating to the glory of God, right? Even as he's eating an unhealthy meal. Sometimes we eat unhealthy meals to the glory of God, right? But the other, the other man eats with a gluttonous indulgence that verges on addiction. His body has been fed junk food for years and does not work as it should. He lacks discipline and self-control. He lives for the moment. So you can eat to the glory of God, you can not eat to the glory of God. But let's go across the street for a second, because every now and then, I'd want an unhealthy meal, right? But every now and then, you need a healthy one, right? There would be times in my, my stint in Lexington where I, I just could not eat that heavy of a meal for lunch, so I need something light. Go over to Panera Bread, right across the street. At Panera Bread, I'd order a, a little half salad with chicken and avocado and a glass of ice water, okay? That was my lunch. A really light lunch, but sometimes I needed one. Well, at Panera Bread, the same thing. Right? You're, you're over here eating unhealthy, but over here when you're eating healthy, just because you're eating healthy doesn't mean you're eating to the glory of God. Right? You can do that to the glory of God or not to the glory of God. Let's paint the scenario over here. Two guys walk in, they order the same thing. They sit down to eat the same thing. One eats because he wants his mind and body functioning at 100% for the rest of the day. Because he's got to do mental work at his job for the rest of the day. Let's say it's a minister. When he needs to study, he needs to focus, and he knows if he eats over here at Five Guys, well, all his energy for the rest of the day is going to be geared toward digestion, not, not for mental work. Right? He's going to have to take a nap after that. So he wants to eat so that he has energy, mental energy, to study God's Word for the rest of the day. But the other, the other eats out of a vain obsession with good looks. He prides himself on having more willpower and discipline than other people, and he looks down on those who are out of shape. He's constantly focused on his physique, his appearance, and he plans on using his body for sin later that evening, hoping to hook up with an attractive woman at the bar later that night. See, it doesn't matter. You're eating healthy, you're not eating healthy. You can do it to the glory of God. You cannot do it to the glory of God in both situations. But we're not just talking about food here. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all 
for the glory of God? How can I do everything to the glory of God? God's glory should be so central to our lives that we ask that question about every activity. How do I do this to the glory of God? How do you brush your teeth to the glory of God? Dead serious. How do you do that? Think about it. Ask yourself that question. Ask it about everything. How do I walk my dog to the glory of God? How do I do the laundry to the glory of God? How do I drive my car to the glory of God? How do I do my job at work to the glory of God? It should inform every decision we make. From the clothes that we purchase, to the way that we present ourselves, to the car that we drive, to the job that we take or the job that we don't take, to the way that we spend money, the food that we eat or do not eat, the way we speak to people, the music we listen to, the shows we watch, the way we spend our downtime, the way we schedule out our time and our day, the activities we let our kids participate in. How can we do everything to the glory of God? And brothers and sisters, we said it before, our ultimate example here is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who asked that question of every single thing, every single decision, every single moment for the glory of God. Now, we can't do this, but Jesus was even able to choose the way that he was born to the glory of God, right? We can't do that. We've got to grow up and learn this. But even the way he was born was for the glory of God. Every waking moment for him, how can I most glorify God in this minute? Even the way he slept or the way he sometimes refrained from sleeping for the glory of God, his speech and his silence, his schedule, his travel, his decisions, his relationships, his solitude, his thoughts, all for the glory of God all the time. And brothers and sisters, Jesus was the happiest man to ever live. Jesus was the happiest, most content, most satisfied in heart person to ever live. And every single moment he's asking, how can I do this to the glory of God? Should not we also, even in pursuit of our own happiness, how can we do everything to the glory of God? And brothers and sisters, it even extended to the way he died. Even in death, he was asking, how can I die to the glory of God? How can we die to the glory of God? When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. He said his, his soul was in anguish to, anguish to the point of death, and he had to pray. He could not pray. And as he prayed, he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, may it be so, if there's any other way. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. He died to the glory of God. He lived to the glory of God. He died to the glory of God. Everything to the glory of God. There's a hymn we used to sing when I was growing up. The words go like this. Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day his tender mercy healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heavens, deeper than the deepest sea, 
Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. None of self and all of thee. This is a good time for us to stop and to spend some time in personal reflection in private response to God. We're going to give just a few moments here. And during these moments, we ask that everyone pray silently. It's a time of response to God's Word. What did God just lay on your heart? You have the opportunity to respond to Him now. So we ask each and every one of us. Not every one of us will respond publicly to God's Word. But every single one of us needs to respond privately to it. And so we're going to give this time as we pray silently, respond to God in whatever ways He has laid this Word on your heart and whatever ways He's convicted you. And then after a few moments of private prayer and private response, we'll come back. We'll have a time of public invitation and response.